My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. For my 100th episode of Light Culture, I am honored to have as my guest today, Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch is justifiably famous as a filmmaker, bursting into public consciousness and con film festival recognition with Stranger Than Paradise, Down by Law, and Mystery Train. He's established himself as an elder statesman of independent cinema, forever a Hollywood outsider, making genre-defying movies that demand their own adjective of Jarmusch-esque. While Hollywood pursues its blockbuster-driven agenda, he tells human stories, working with an expanding list of idiosyncratic characters that have included musicians like Iggy Pop, Joe Strummer, Tom Waits, and RZA, as well as established actors like Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray, Johnny Depp, and Adam Driver. While film will always be a reference point, the occasion for our talk today is the imminent opening of Jim Jarmusch newsprint collages at the James Fuentes Gallery in New York, an exhibition of 40 collages made since 2016 using cut-up newspaper. The writer-director-artist is also a musician with the band Squirrel, which will soon be touring and playing live to films made by the artist Man Ray. Welcome, Jim Jarmusch. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Wow, it's my pleasure. So let me just start right off. Why collage? This is the first exhibition, I, I believe, in ever, right? Yeah, the first time I've shown them. Uh, well, we made a book of them, uh, Anthology Editions, that is coming out September 28th. You know, I've been making these little newsprint collages for many years, and it's just kind of something I do on my own. I, I've sent a few to friends over the years, but they're just kind of um, ways of initially just amusing myself. And then during the pandemic, really, Ariel de Saint-Fal, who I work with, she had shown a few in when she curated a few art shows over the past years, and people seem to like them and bought them. So <laughs> she said, well, you should really put these out as a book, in a book. So the book from uh, Anthology Editions has maybe 150 of them in it. And then James Fuentes uh, offered us a show. They're all very small. Um, they're, they're not really my intention of entering into the art world as a major voice or anything. They're just little things that I've made that I think might be amusing. And the book is really, I think, it's designed to be a fun object. I'm talking too much already, but they're sort of my way of making art of appropriation and just minimally altering or reorganizing visual information in a very, very minimal, uh, slightly 
surrealist way. I don't like to use the word surrealist. I think it's used too broadly, but definitely there are uh, origins there in, in a way of juxtaposing things that are were not originally intended to be put together. Right, and weren't the surrealists, if not the first, but among the first to, to use that form of collage? Well, the Cubists, Brock and Picasso, I think, maybe coined the term collage, which means to glue things together. But yeah, the surrealists, certainly uh, the Dadaists, and then the surrealists. And then, you know, it's been going on forever and ever with uh, so many artists using this form. It's a form that's very uh, simple in a way, so even children can make collages. I like the primitive sort of essence of it, and yet sometimes they're very sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just a kind of beautiful form. I well, think. it seems easy because all you have to do is cut out things and paste it down. But uh, uh, for telling, it's not that easy because I've tried and I <laughs> wasn't really happy with the results. Uh, in interviews, I've heard you refer to your films as collages in different ways of how you work and how you think of the scenes and putting together a story as collages. Does that connect with you? Well, in a way, you know, since I made this book and since I decided to show these collages and then have been asked to talk about it a little bit, which I'm not, you know, I'm not really self-analytical about why or how I do things, but it made me realize that my approach to almost everything I do creatively is connected to my approach as a collage artist because when I make a film I know critics have said they don't have much story to them or plot but my, my films are narrative films they're not experimental structurally particularly but you know when I'm starting out I just start gathering little pieces of ideas thoughts scenes dialogue and I gather them in in a notebook and they guide me toward making a story out of it when I sit down to write the script. But before I ever write anything, I'm gathering the elements first that I, I'm not exactly sure how they're going to go together. So sometimes I'll have a scene that I like that will end up being in the middle of the, the film. I don't even know necessarily the order. Sometimes my initial scripts are somewhat modular in a way. So, you know, they are, it's all connected. And now making music for me has been very similar because, you know, lately I have, I'm in my own little studio here. And what I'll do is often I trade tracks with Carter Logan for Squirrel, or I will collage tracks together in a way. In fact, recently I've been laying down guitar parts and then laying a second guitar part without listening to the first one. So I'm not quite sure where I'm diverging. And I like those results a lot. And I'm working on a new record with Josef Van Vissum, uh, the lutenist that we've made several records together. And we're also sending things back and forth remotely. So even that sort of collage form guides me with music. I'm writing a lot of more poems lately. I, I've always written poems, which I also don't really show to people, but I, I may gather some of those uh, into a book at some point. But recently I've been gathering titles for the poems before I actually write the poem. 
So I looked through a notebook of, let's see, let's see what title might I write a poem from. Whatever it takes, right, to get you started. I feel like that's the bottom line, right? Whatever it's going to take to get you going. Yeah, and, I, you know, I, I studied, I came up uh, learning from the New York School poets, um, specifically Kenneth Koch and David Shapiro were, were my teachers, but my inspirations have been, uh, you know, Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery and Ron Patchett and James Schuyler. And a lot of these poets use often little game structures or oblique strategies, if you will, to coin like the Brian Eno's approach sometimes as kind of guides and, yeah, a, a place to start from. There was uh, a group of French poets called Ulipo that did a lot of these things, Raymond Kino, and these guys, they used structures, but then they plugged the poems into the structure rather than the structure emanating from the poem. I, I don't know if that's... But anyway, yeah, I find I use this a lot, a lot, this kind of form. I'm working on another project now for some years with Phil Klein, the composer. It's about Nikola Tesla. And it started as a kind of abstract theater piece. And we were working with Robert Wilson for a while, but that didn't really work out because he's so busy and has so many things going on. But we love Robert Wilson. But we're still proceeding with this. And even my input in that project, although it's shifted, I'm making small films from existing footage from the time Tesla was alive that then will be used as kind of entre-acts or little connective things within the overall structure. Phil and I worked on overall structures for this piece for years, but now he's pretty much focusing on that and the music, and I'm making these little films. The procedure is sort of collage-like, is my point, you know? So uh, I don't know. It's something that runs through everything I make somehow. Well, yeah, I feel like that's what makes it interesting in a way as well, because it, it pulls in things from all these different places. And, you know, you, you managed to assemble it into somewhat of a coherent whole. So, uh, well, that you know. remains to be seen, but <laughs> even, even if it's incoherent. Okay, incoherent whole, all right? Yeah, <laughs> if you at prefer. times. You know, I know you were friendly with Jean-Michel Basquiat, whose work to me also resembles a collage in the sense that when I look at his big pieces, it just seems like there's a lot of, almost like a wall of graffiti of many dis different pieces that somehow all come together as one. Does that resonate with you as far as looking at his work or does that make any sense? Yes, because I know that Jean used to collect things that inspired him, like books about, uh, not autopsy, but um, like musculature or, you know, books about the human body, or he would gather things that inspired him from science, of certainly from the history of art, from American and world history, and the history of racism, and the history of agriculture. And, you know, he was always collecting a lot of things that were interesting to him. And then he would, yeah, arrange them. I guess they would just sort of come out of him uh, when he was creating a painting. He'd have certain subjects, uh, you know, the history of jazz and all these things. So I watched him work a little. I wasn't so close. Like, 
uh, our friend John Larry was very close with John and uh, when he was younger and, and I think inspired him a lot and encouraged his music and got to watch him more. And also, I don't know uh, if you know Stephen Torton, who worked closely even mixing Jean's paints. And it's really interesting to talk to him about Jean's process because he really saw it totally from the inside, you know. Sean would tell him he needed something to paint, a piece of type of wood to paint on, or and Stephen would get that and watch him. But I'm sort of digressing, but I did get to see him create things on a few occasions and hang around with him, and uh, very inspiring, amazing, you know, artist. In your work, let's say, specifically with music, uh, would you consider yourself an avant-gardist in that way? Musically? Yes. I don't know. I'd hate to put a label on me. I think the music that I make is sort of in a kind of avant rock kind of uh, area. I do occasionally create things that have structures like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, like song structures. But more often they don't. The structures kind of come to me as I'm creating the music or... Yeah, it's hard to explain. Uh, it's sort of mysterious to me. And I, I love that it's kind of mysterious. But if you give me, like if Carter Logan gives me, say, a drum track that is like, uh, you know, what so-called kraut rock, you know, this type of drum rhythm. Oh, man, I could just give me that rhythm and I'll create something out of it. I, I like to have a starting point. Sometimes I don't. Carter and I just created a music, a piece of music with birds, a field recordings I made of birds for something that uh, is being created for the Audubon Society and asked a lot of uh, musicians to make pieces that have bird recordings in them, like I think Animal Collective and Nick Cave and Philip Glass and a wide variety of people were contributing. And then they'll put them on their website and uh, the proceeds from streaming, I think, is going to protect songbirds. But that was really interesting to have. Okay, the starting point is have something with birds in it, you know. And when I work with Yosef, he will send me lute tracks, and then I will add usually electric guitar or electronic tracks to them. Um, I'm right in the process of remixing a really great uh, Patti Smith song that she did for soundwalk collective they made three records with patty based on three different french poets uh rambo arto and domal and i'm doing a track um, from a rambo poem called eternity it has some sufi singers and sufi drum tracks but my remix has a lot of psychedelic kind of backwards guitar tracks and uh it's very trance-like. So there I had, you know, I had basic tracks to make something from. I didn't start from nowhere. But sometimes I just go in my studio and I just turn on my recording uh, equipment and just, I don't even know what I'm going to do, you know? And if I get a good track, I, oh, maybe I could add this to that or, you know, I'll do an acoustic piece. Or I also love in music, since I'm, I, I love electric guitars and synthesizers, I, I love electronic music, but I love electric guitars so much as like sound generators. And I, I play guitar, but I'm no technical 
shredder of any kind. That's not my interest. So lately, I've I acquired a um, a cigar box guitar, a three string guitar that it's electrified, and I don't really know how to play it, so I'm playing it really well. Um, I got a passerelle bridge that I installed in an acoustic guitar. That's a, a brass bridge that raises the strings very high on like the 18th fret of the guitar. It's designed by um, Khaki King and Rachel Rosenkrantz. Uh, they're, anyway, you can bend notes and make it sound. You can bend strings and make it sound like an Arabic instrument or an you know Eastern instrument. Um, it's really fun because I, I try odd tunings and I don't know how you're supposed to approach the instrument. And that's like a freedom. So I've been getting some really nice results with these things that I don't know how to play. <laughs> it's great that you could uh, find something like that right at this point and still get all excited about something new. I've heard you say or read somewhere, but correct me if I'm wrong, as I'm sure you will, that you feel like you can't listen to blues-based guitar music in the same way that, which is the music that you basically grew up on and loved. And many of the musicians who you put in your films also come from that. Yeah, it's a recent kind of um, negative Pavlovian reaction. I've only discovered in the last maybe six months where I cannot stand hearing someone playing sort of blues brick based shredding electric guitar parts i i don't know why i i have to turn it off and i'm not quite sure you know i i'm really deeply in love and i have been for years but with like the kind of saharan uh rock um desert music from tinarawen or tamil crest and now uh Madhu Mokhtar. Um, mm, yeah. This yeah. kind of stuff is a different approach to guitar playing so that that stuff I can still listen to endlessly. But really, I Stevie Ray Vaughan, I got to turn it off. I don't know why. And it's not that I don't like the music, but it's, yeah, I don't know. What about uh, Neil Young, <laughs> who's someone you did? You made a documentary about him. He scored one of your films. And yes, so how do you feel about that today? Don't well, want to put you I, on the spot. But. I think I don't put Neil in that category, although he does play blues-based rock and roll often. Neil's always been coloring outside the lines as a guitarist, so he can play and has played like one or two note guitar solos, you know, that go on and on, and there's only two notes or whatever. So for him, it's it's not abrasive to me in the same way as... I guess it's this technical proficiency that is blues-based and played by, uh, you know, very accomplished. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. that, And it'll probably pass. I'll probably love yeah. it. But right now, yeah, it's true. I, I just got to turn that shit off. I don't know why. So why do you uh, use musicians in your films? I've listed a few of them earlier. Iggy, Joe Strummer, Tom Waits, Rizza. Uh, Neil Young, I don't think he was in a film, but he was uh, scored one of your films. But what is it about them that ma first made you think that they could actually be in a film and act? What is there about them that not only attracts you, but makes you feel like you want them in your movie? 
Well, it's hard to answer because really I'm attracted to creating or collaborating, making characters with particular people while I'm writing the script and I'm sort of imagining who would embody the character or who am I imagining embodying it while it's still imaginary to me. So, you know, there are a lot of incredible actors that I know and have worked with um, that I love. I think because I started out really in the music world and kind of grew up in CBGBs and Maxes and, you know, a lot of my friends in the early days when I was forming as a kind of creative person myself, the majority of them were musicians. So even in my early films, like in Stranger, you know, John Lurie is a musician and Richard Edson was a musician. He was a drummer of Sonic Youth originally. Esther Ballant is a, an actor, of course, but also a musician. And I just kind of knew a lot of musicians. So then working with people like writing something for Tom Waits or for who's an actor or Joe Strummer, who has been an actor, um, it just seems sort of logical that I would, I imagine some of them, but it's more about the person themselves than, you know, I don't just sit down and think, what musicians could I go out and get to be in a movie? You know, it doesn't <laughs> quite work like that. It's like, just who do I know or I could imagine being that character? And a lot of musicians are innately good at acting because they are performers and they can leave certain parts of themselves behind and accentuate other parts of themselves, which is what actors do when they become a character. So some of them are really good at doing that. You know, some of them play characters a lot of Tom Waits' songs, you know, he assumes a character in the song that he makes. And uh, and Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop is not Jim Osterberg, you know. They're, they're different people in a way. So. I know. I love that interview you did with him at the New York Times where uh, he talks about his process of how, how he takes his shirt off before he writes because then he has to become Iggy Pop. So uh, yes. I, I get your point. And I've seen him turn it on and off on command, not always intentionally, but being accosted by people. I've seen him become, he was Jim Osterberg, and suddenly he's a pop, and then he comes back. You know, it's, it's a complicated thing, I think. And Strummer said something interesting when we were shooting Mystery Train. Um, he always wanted to be alone a little bit before we did a take. He wanted to go off and just be left alone, even just for some seconds, you know. And I always facilitated that for any actor. I try to find what helps them be able to just be a character reacting in front of a camera. So once I said to Joe, what, what does it sort of feel like to you, those moments when you're alone before you before you come in front of the camera? And he said, I feel like I'm just loading up a basket with very fragile eggs and I have to deliver them. So I just want to load the basket very carefully before I bring it over to you, you know? So I, love that. I found that very interesting metaphor. But, you know, all actors are different. They all have a different approach. I've learned that through these years. There's no one way for anyone to direct all actors. So if I'm working with, 
Bill Murray, that's very different than working with John Hurt. You know, they're all, they just have a different way of how they become a character. So I, I try to work with them all separately and find the way to get the best collaboration. But, you know, I've, I've been lucky to get a lot of great musicians get nice performances from them. Definitely. I've heard you say just now and also elsewhere about how you write for a particular person in terms of developing a character and you have somebody in mind when you're writing, besides the fact that I'm sure sometimes it doesn't quite work out the way you imagine it. But when it does, for example, with Johnny Depp and Dead Man playing an accountant, so what made you think that Johnny Depp would be the right person to play an accountant, which is not how most people would imagine him? Well, in that film, in that story, it was a character who was entering a very foreign world, the world of the developing Western North America in the second half of the 19th century. And he was coming from the East, from Cleveland, right? So what I loved about Johnny was starting off with a guy that's sort of like a blank piece of paper, a white piece of paper. And throughout the film, other characters write on that paper. They say who he is. He becomes an outlaw, you know? He becomes William Blake to this Native American character, nobody who is a little off, you know? He's a very complex character himself. So he's imagining that Johnny's character is this, or now he's an outlaw, so he's assumed to be something else. And in fact, he's really none of those things. So he has to sort of assume them in, a, in an odd way. And Johnny just is a person who, as an actor, is always assuming. And in his real life, it's very complicated for him, like what people put on him. Anyway, I just thought, I don't know. I just wrote it for him. He seemed like the best person I could imagine. You have kind of a troop of actors I kind of refer to it as a troupe. I don't know if you think of them in those terms, but a lot of them reappear in your films like Tilda Swinton or Bill Murray, some more recently like Adam Driver, who you first cast in Patterson, I think before he became this megastar that he is today. What was it about him that made you feel that he would be the right person to portray this poet did you see him before in, with Leonard Dunham, or how did you know his work? Yeah, I saw an episode or two of Girls, and then I saw him, what else? I saw him in something else where it was completely different. And I just like his, uh, it's hard for me to describe exactly, because I'm not really good at analyzing the things. I'm very intuitive, but there's something that Adam has that's, very, very human without, he doesn't have to push anything. You just observe him. But now I've seen him do so many diverse things that I sent him a text the other day because I just saw Annette, uh, Leos Carrack's film, uh. that um, Adam Driver's performance, no matter what you think of the film, it is mind-blowing. It is, what the hell? How does he do these things? I saw him on Broadway, uh, you know, on a stage. So anyway, I wrote him a text saying, 
damn it, is there anything you can't do? It's almost getting annoying. (laughs) Because that guy is just amazing, but he's very down to earth and he's very focused. So when you work with him, he wants to be the thing you're collaborating on. And it can be a really serious person or a total goofball. You know, he just wants to find what the thing is. And I don't know. He's a very, very interesting person and an actor. I, I just love, I like the humanness of, of him. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't seem fake unless he's supposed to be playing a character that's fake. I don't know how to explain it, but I'm very, he's very alluring, that guy. I, I love working with Adam. He takes it so seriously, though. When we work together on the set, I always sort of find myself taking him aside and just trying to tell him some silly jokes to make him laugh, you know, because he's very intense <laughs> while his work. And I sort of distract him a little bit. It's maybe not a good thing on my part, but I can't help it. It's sort of like when you have a child that's very sullen and you want to tickle him, you know, kind of. It's sort of like that. I'm not going to tickle him, but I try to tell him some <laughs> joke occasionally. But yeah, he's, a, he's an amazing guy, you know. And I got to work with maybe the greatest actor who, who we've lost now, John Hurt. Really, in my opinion, one of the greatest actors ever who ever lived. You know, this guy was amazing. I can't believe he would even be in my films. I don't know why. But really, to get the chance to work with some of these people is really mind-blowing for me. And I work with Tilda yeah. on a number of things and I so many great people. Kate Blanchett, I got to work with. God, I want to do something with her again. You know, like, I've been very lucky to get to work with these people. And Bill Murray, he's just, uh, he's a weird kind of gift in my life. I don't know why. Even in my personal life, if I ever have something really bothering me, I could call, you know, Bill's just really very helpful to me as a human being. I mean, I don't get to see him or even talk to him very often. But he's always there for me, you know. I have the keys to his house in the glove compartment of my car, which he insists <laughs> that I have. And Bill, I'm not going to go in your your house when you're not there. He's like, well, you never know. You might have an emergency. I don't know. Well, you have these keys. I'm putting them in your car. You know, he's just like that. I don't know. He's a really a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful person as a kind of very strange guide to being in the present moment. And being kind to other people somehow, you know? Well, it seems like you do make friends with these people who you work with, that there's more than just like a working relationship. For example, Hitchcock, we know Alfred Hitchcock was famously hated actors. He really didn't like them. I don't feel like that's how you feel about actors. No, not at all. And the weird thing is, you know, I don't look at my films again once they've been finished and they've been released because I can't change them. And I don't want to worry about what I did wrong. I just don't want to see them ever again, you know? So when I think back about the making of any film that I've been involved in, it's not about the film anymore. It's about the experience and those people and, and, my connection with them becomes more important to me somehow. And of course, we all were together to make the film. That's the point of it all. But somehow, all of these uh, 
relationships in a way become, and even the people you don't see again, is somehow they become more important or more resonant than the film itself for me. I, I don't know how to explain it, but... Yeah, I get that. I believe you also feel that a film making a film is a collaborative project, whereas you know the aforementioned Hitchcock was not of that mind at all, and even you know the so-called auteur theory that gives all the credit to the director for what happens on the screen. The fact that you approach it as a collaborator, maybe that's what makes all these people want to work with you, feel good about the experience, want to come back and do it over again. Well, it is totally collaborative. You know, when I was um, young, I got to be an assistant or a kind of gopher for Nicholas Ray his last two years before he died. And I got to talk to him endlessly about so many things. But, you know, he would do like head trips on the actors. He would play psychological games and be sort of cruel. Um, he would do a lot of things if he wanted them to be very upset in a scene. He would try to get sometimes the actor very upset, you know? And I, I just could never do that. That's not my nature, you know? That's not the way I... And I, 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 love, I love Nick Ray. I love his film. I love his films. He's like a great romantic, incredible director. Use of the camera. What he did was amazing. You know, it means so much to me. But Hitchcock a little less so. I appreciate the formulaic nature of his films. They're like little machines that he builds in, in a very particular way. Totally opposite to how I would approach a film, making a film. But I would never be cruel like Nick to an actor. I don't know. I just couldn't do that. Or like Hitchcock. It's famous for that as well. Well, and yeah, mistreating women particularly. I think he had some problems, you know. But, yeah, you know, and Nick Ray was probably not a great... I know he was a bad father and, a, you know, a fucked up person in a lot of ways. I'm not talking about his... Him personally, I'm talking about, you know, filmmaking. And yet using sort of manipulation of people of actors emotions seems really like not the right way for me so what is your way how do you bring out a performance well my ways are this i i try not to rehearse the scenes we're going to shoot but i try to rehearse scenes in which the actor is in character because for me, acting is about reacting. It's not about acting out the intention of the script. It's about reacting to the little scene that we've made up that's imaginary and we have a camera roll, but we're in a house that, that's maybe not even a real house. It might just be on a stage or you know, people are saying words that have been written for them. So it's all fabricated. So. I try to get to keep them in a place where that still feels like they're reacting. And I try to keep the dialogue open for them to change it or improvise a bit. I don't want to have them too tightly reined in. And also, I try to shoot out of order often so that they're not worrying about, well, how does this scene connect to the scene we did that comes right before? Yeah, you know, don't worry about that. Let's just worry about this scene right now where we are. And then another thing I do is I never talk about the scene while we're working in front of all the actors involved together. Like if there are three actors in a scene, I don't sit down with the three of them and say, here's what the scene means, because 
it means something very different to each one of them. And that's, in fact, something I learned from Nick Ray. He told me, always talk to each actor alone about what you're doing with them, because it's not a, you know, it's not their business what it means to the other character. You, you don't even want them to think about that. If you do, they're not reacting at all anymore. You're just acting out something, you know? So that was very helpful. So I try to, I try to do those things. I try to be kind to them. And I also, I try to look at them, and this will sound a little weird, but and it is not derogatory. It is intended to be respectful. I try to think of them in a way as children. Because being an actor on a film set is being asked to be an imaginary person on command, you know? It's like, okay, you're over there talking, you're eating the set. Okay, time to go. We're going to roll. Get over here, get on the set and hit your mark. Are you ready? And we're rolling. And now you're another human, you're another person, right? So I have to think if actors act out or they get emotional or they get upset, that's normal, man. How could they not? You know what I mean? How could you not when you're using your own emotions as your tools? How can they not get kind of out of whack now and then? You know, I expect them to. So I'm very accepting of them. They're doing a very hard thing emotionally. And I think they feel that from me, that, look, he knows this is emotional. He's not like a dictator. He's trying to make something together. And I think they feel that. So in a way, looking at them for me as like children is very helpful for me because it makes me more accepting of their emotional state. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to say it. That doesn't mean you can just be an asshole and act out and mistreat other people, you know? But if you get upset about something emotionally as an actor, gee, how could you not, given the procedure of the thing, you know? So I think they, they feel that about me too. I hope they do. Well, I assume you've you've learned these uh, tricks or strategies or ways over the years. Now, uh, I don't know how many films you have you made all overall. I don't know, but I'm point. very slow, and I only make one every three. You years. made a lot. Well, you made a lot of great films. I'm learning. You know, I'm a student. I'm learning. I'm still learning. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about you learning because uh, and France, the country of France, where you spent some time as a student in Paris, going to the Cinematheque, where I believe you received your film education or more of an extensive film education. And you were also acclaimed at Cannes very early with your first film or second film. And, you know, how was that? I mean, I can't imagine like coming in, I'm sure you weren't like, you were nervous and you were just like, wow, what am I doing here? Just in the first case, but then to also win an award, launching your career. You've been a regular at Cannes ever since. You've been on the jury. What does that say about America, first of all, and Hollywood and the system that uh, what's happening there with regard to appreciation of film as an art form or even as an entertainment that's not only blockbuster made for amusement park rides and things like that? I'm pushing a lot of things together into one question, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Well, yeah, I don't. Well, first of all, I've never been on the jury in Cannes. I've been... Oh, you haven't? Oh, sorry. No, I have a problem with 
being on a jury because I don't quite understand the idea of group consensus about art, you know. But anyway, I respect those juries for sure. You've been asked, I bet. Yeah, I've been asked, but I find it a little, uh, I don't know, feel funny about it. But but what you're saying, yes, I I couldn't believe that anyone would even be interested in our early films, like, well, the first to get some attention, Stranger Than Paradise. I didn't think anyone would really probably see the film once we made it, you know? And then to have it shown in Cannes and even um, distributed around the world was like, I could, I just really couldn't quite believe it, you know? So that was really exciting and kind of uh, daunting. When we first went to Cannes with Stranger, we, a group of us stayed in the same rented house and were sleeping on the floor. And I remember one day, uh, we had no water at all, so I had to shave. To be on TV, I was using <laughs> cold tea from the day before. To, oh, shit. Like, you know? And we were putting up our own flyers out of the closet and staple guns and tape and stuff. So we didn't even know what the hell would happen. But what it did was it got me to the next film, which for me was Down by Law. And so it was really exciting. Why? I don't know. I don't understand. You know, it's sort of like a lot of avant-garde uh, ja or outside jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s here. Nobody would even book them. But if they went to like to Paris, they or even in the even in the 20s with uh, Josephine Baker or or hot jazz from the 20s you know, was suddenly um, appreciated over there where here it was still not, you know, that's black music for little clubs and that's kind of dirty music or, you know, however it was um, looked at. So, you know, France has always been um, very open to experimental artwork and appreciation of artists and poets. And that's not really the case in, in the United States. It's not the same kind of thing where Europe's imperfect and it's very Eurocentric and it's also inherently racist in many ways and colonial. And, you know, there's a lot of negative things about it, but they always have appreciated uh, just experimental thinking much more. And so for Stranger Than Paradise to be treated like it's a real film, well, we were kind of shocked by that. You mean it's a real movie? It's a real film? I'm a real, even now, in America, I'm like an indie director. I'm a marginal, you know, I'm not a real film director. There's always something else put on it, like indie guy or whatever. <laughs> wow, in Europe, I'm an actual film director. You know, in, in Japan, I'm actually a film director. I'm not just an indie amateur, you know? So that's always nice to, to feel. Should Hollywood reach out to you now and want to give you some kind of special award? What would you say? No, they're, they're, they would. It would be very... Uh, I, that would be very insincere, I think, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, you know, your fellow graduate of uh, from NYU Film School, Spike Lee, who is also was considered, you know, outsider, but he has made it his mission really to become recognized by the Academy and and 
makes a real effort all the time. You don't really even go out there. You have very little contact with that world. No, I'm shy of that world. I kind of stay away from it. But it's different for Spike because Spike's a fighter and Spike's been fighting for Black American cinema and these voices. And he is so important historically in American cinema for for pushing those boundaries and fighting for those things. And Spike can straddle experimentation with mainstream things. And he continues to do so. Look at Chirac, you know, very odd. He takes a lot of chances. But there are others too. You know, the Cullen brothers are experts at straddling mainstream things with innovation. You know, they're really important too to me in that way. And there are other people that, you know, Wes Anderson is very viable commercially, but those films are very, very stylistically particular. You know, they're not, he's not following a mainstream, you know, template. He's just following his own vision. That's just what he does. So, you know, I love all kinds of filmmakers and all kinds of films. And I even, I like mainstream films, but I like, you know, I like to see films by Belatar, and then I like to see, you know, Terminator. I'm not a hierarchist or whatever. So I, I just like voices that are original and voices that, and cinema is such, you know, I say this all the time, but I'm in love with cinema as a, as a fan of movies, as a fan of the form, because it has every other form in it. You know, it has music and composition and writing and movement and style. And, you know, it's got all the other forms in it. It's just such a beautiful way of expression. So I'm always embracing just the diversity of, of different types of filmmakers. So I, I'll go see a film, you know, uh, a commercial film, but then I, I have to see a, a Kelly Reichert film to balance it out, you know, or. <laughs> You know, I like to see big, big action movies, but then I got to go see a film by Jacques Rivette or something, you know, that <laughs> cleanse your palate in a way. Yes. <laughs> and they keep the balance, you know, but I'm like that with music. I listen to, you know, classical music by Anton Webern, And then I got to listen to like really, you know, uh, chopped and screwed hip hop stuff or, or very primitive rock and roll or or music from other cultures. You know, I don't like the the hierarchical aspect of any of these things. I just love when humans express things that move me, then ah, they're part of me. I, I take them. I take them in. You made a reference to making another movie at some point about, I don't remember exactly the context, but is it safe to say that we will be seeing another Jim Jarmusch movie at some point? You know, I'm not so sure. I, uh, I'm working on a, a script now that's sort of a doable film. I, I have up my sleeve a possible collaboration on something that's partly maybe animated, but I'm, I'm writing a film for actors that I've, some of which I've worked with before, but it's a very small controlled kind of thing. But, you know, I'm just, I tell you, I'm really irritated by the whole state of the industry and now filmmakers hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that combination of words, man. Yeah, it's perfect. So we're not going to see a TikTok video by you? Maybe dancing. Maybe. I'll tell you, I, got, I did a, something that was very uh, satisfying last December. I've never, ever made a film for anyone else or a commercial or anything like that. But I got approached by Saint Laurent to make a film for them. And uh, their director, the head designer, Anthony Vaccarello, is a great, he's a great artist. I love his, you know, I'm not a fashion historian, but I see a connection where he comes from Azadine Alaya or certain, certain, I mean, he has his own thing that I think is really fucking great, you know? So I got to make a film for them. That was a very different way for me of making a film. I didn't even know for sure who my cast was two days before shooting, you know? Um, but it kind of didn't matter. I would just text ideas Right. <laughs> Chloe, right? Yeah, probably a bigger budget than Strangers and Well, they didn't other they didn't fuck with me about the budget. They were just here's, you know, here's what you Do need and I got to bring Carter Logan as my production entity and then a wonderful producer too from France and uh it was really kind of a pleasure, you know? Nice. And that, France comes through again. They're so it's the open. French, man. Again, yeah. yeah. And Anthony Vaccarello, he's a fashion designer. He's texting me about uh, the clothes in Belle du Jour of Buñuel's film, you know, from the mm. 60s. Like he was referencing things that, I, okay, he's speaking to me. I, I, that, I get that shit. You know, that's my DNA right there, you know, Buñuel films, et cetera. Okay. So that was very rewarding. I, I, it was a real pleasure in a funny way, you know? And then that the sounds end, great. I know I'm making a film that's designed to target rich people for luxurious things, you know, in the world. And yet the artistic side of it's very important to Anthony and, th and therefore to me. So that was where the connection came was, was an artistic realm that was kind of great, you know? So that was a kind of good experience for me. No, that's great, Jim. Thank you so much for being on my show today. You know, I love talking with you, so I'm happy I had a chance. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm just blabbering on and on, but it's great to see you. I miss just hanging out as we have I know. Out throughout our lives, but soon. Soon, soon come. And uh, good luck on, on the collage. Thank you. Yes, my book, Some Collages, and my uh, show at Fuentes, Newsprint Collages. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb 
You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. 